0: Hey folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. It is the twelfth day of Christmas, and in this episode, we are concluding our series on Types of the Nativity with a discussion of Revelation chapter 12. We do want to let you know about an online course that we have coming up with Alistair Roberts. He's going to be teaching a theology of the tabernacle and the temple. That course will be on Saturdays on Zoom from 1 to 3 Central Time and will run from February 5th to March 12th. You can find more information about that class at the link in the show notes. With that, we really hope that you enjoy this discussion over this passage, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeffrey Myers concluding our series on the Nativity, with a discussion of Revelation chapter 12.
1: Welcome to the Theopolis podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart, and I'm here today with Alastair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeff Myers. Merry Christmas to you all. We're still in the Christmas season, uh, and we're still doing a, a Christmas series of podcasts. We started a couple of months ago doing birth stories in the Bible, types of the nativity, and we looked at a number of the stories in the book of Genesis about miracle births, and uh, discussed how those are foreshadowings of the incarnation, uh, the birth of Jesus, the conception of birth of Jesus by Mary. Uh, In the last few weeks, we've been looking at the birth stories in the Gospels. We looked at uh, the early chapters of Matthew and the early chapters of Luke, and uh, looked at how both of those evangelists tell the story of John's birth and Jesus' birth uh, in terms of categories and patterns that are coming from the Old Testament. So, they're still operating with types of, the, types of the nativity when we're looking at the New Testament. Today, we close out this brief series of uh, studies on uh, birth stories in the nativity. We're skipping ahead to the last book of the Bible. We're skipping ahead to the book of Revelation, and we're going to be looking at the birth story that's told in Revelation 12. And just to set the context, I want to make a few points about the, the general setting of Revelation and the setting of this particular chapter in Revelation. When I've worked on Revelation, my commentary on Revelation, I've uh, used a fairly simple four-part outline. Uh, There are four places where John says that he's in spirit, uh, and each of those is the marker of the beginning of a sequence in the book of Revelation. It happens in chapter one when John is in spirit on the Lord's day, and Jesus appears to him and dictates the letters to the seven churches, He's in spirit again at the beginning of chapter 4, and he's caught up by the spirit into heaven. He walks through a door in the sky, and he witnesses the angels and uh, living creatures around the throne worshiping God. And then he sees the lamb appear, and then a series of events that comes out of that. And that's actually the section that we're in. It's the longest section of Revelation from chapter 4 through uh, chapter 16. And then uh, John is in in spirit again. He's taken to the wilderness, and there he sees... The uh, Harlot City, Jerusalem, I think, the Harlot City in the wilderness, who is drinking the blood of the saints, and then he's in the spirit, in spirit again, toward the beginning of chapter twenty-one, and he's taken up to a mountain and he sees Jerusalem descending as a bride. But we're in uh, chapter twelve, occurs within the large sweep of that series of visions, which had, uh, or that series of visions which begins with John's ascent into heaven, and in that series we have a series of. Uh, seven seals, the the, uh, lamb breaks the seven seals and opens the seven seals of the scroll. Uh, That leads into seven trumpets uh, that uh, are uh, announcing the, the reading or the declaration of the contents of the scroll. It concludes with seven chalices of blood that are poured out on the world in chapter 16. And chapters 12 through 15 or chapters 11 through 15, Uh, are not organized, obviously, by a sequence of sevens. All the surrounding material is organized by a sequence of sevens, and uh, a lot of commentators suggest that uh, especially these uh, chapters 12 through 15 are kind of interlude. I was frustrated by the uh, abuse of the term interlude in uh, commentaries on Revelation because you can find a commentary somewhere that uh, speaks of almost everything in Revelation as an interlude. It's like everybody's waiting for something to happen, and and nothing actually happens. I don't think this is an interlude at all. I think the chapters 12 through 15 are really the central thrust. They present the central new material, the new revelation that's being disclosed in the book of Revelation. Chapters 12 through 15 are disclosing the things that are short, or 12 through 16, the things that are shortly to take place in Revelation. Uh, That is the rise of the beast, uh, the rise of the land beast, the harlot's attacks, uh, and the suffering of the, the martyrs, the harvest of the martyrs, and the outpouring of their blood, those are the things that are in the immediate future for John when he's looking at these visions, and that's what's contained in this section of Revelation. So, I think this is really the, the, the central uh, thrust of it, I, and I, as I read Revelation, this is, the, this is actually the contents. Chapters 11 or 12 through 15 are the contents of the scroll, uh, the scroll is opened by the Lamb. The scroll is delivered in chapter 10 to John. John eats the scroll, and then he begins to speak. And what he speaks are the things that are shortly to take place, which we be- which begin with a summary, I think, in chapter 11, and then the uh, detailed visions of chapters 12 through 15, and uh, concluding with the chalices of chapter 16. So, um, at the beginning of that sequence, in chapter 12, I think we're going back briefly to the beginning of the whole gospel story. There are a couple places in Revelation where we we kind of rewind the tape and go back to the beginning and uh, start over from there. I think that happens in chapter four and five when the Lamb appears in heaven, that's the ascension. So we're back to the beginning of the apostolic period. Now we're rewinding the tape all the way back to the the birth of Jesus, I think, in chapter 12, and then very quickly moving on to the sufferings of the church uh, in chapters 12 through uh, 14 and the outpouring of their blood that happens in chapters 15 and 16. Just a couple of things in the immediate in the immediate uh, context. One is that there's a there are repeated references throughout the uh sh- chapter surrounding chapter 12 to Psalm 2. We're going to see some of those allusions here. But Psalm 2 is a is it reverberates through chapters 10, 11, and 12 of Revelation. Psalm 2 of course is the psalm of the 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 roaring nations, the hubbub of the nations. The Lord Speaking to them in his wrath, the Lord installing his king, uh, and that all is uh, part of the uh, atmosphere of this vision of uh, a child being born. Uh, the other thing that I think is significant is the the, the immediate preceding uh, uh, verse to the beginning of chapter twelve. Chapter eleven ends with the temple of God in heaven is opened, and the ark of the covenant appears in the temple. Uh, the Ark of the the ark the throne of God is going to descend from earth from heaven down to earth I think that's part one of the great great themes of revelation is the descent of the throne um, so that uh, God is God is establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven uh, but that setting the opening up of the temple and the appearance of the ark uh, is immediately precedes the sign in heaven that uh, John sees at the beginning of chapter 12 and I think we have to read those two together so, the woman clothed with the sun, moon under her feet, the crown of twelve stars on her head, and the great dragon. Those two figures that appear in the sky are in the presence of this opened heaven, in the presence, in other words, of the throne of God. And I think you have you have a kind of triptych: uh, the throne, the woman, and the dragon. And it to me it resembles the triptych that you have in Zechariah three, where you have Satan and the high priest Joshua standing before the Lord. Uh, and uh, there's a there's a, a dispute between them, and Joshua the high priest needs to be vindicated and cleansed before he can begin his service as priest. We have a similar kind of triptych here at the beginning of Revelation, with the with the Lord's throne appearing, and then two characters. So one of one of the one of the issues here, of course, is the the identity of the woman. Uh, this this passage has been uh, referred to by Catholics to justify certain teachings about. Mary, the woman is identified with Mary. Uh, I think most, many commentators, at least, think that the woman is a is a uh, uh, a corporate figure rather than an individual mother. So, uh, uh, do you have you all have thoughts, conclusions about the identity of the woman in this scene?
2: Does it need to be an either or? Can't it be both um, uh, Mary and also? corporate Israel, uh, Mary being the fulfillment, the endpoint of all of the all of the longings for the Messiah, um, uh, is, isn't that possible? I think that's
3: the approach I'll take, that uh, one of the problems that when we read Catholic readings of these sorts of texts, the problem is not seeing the typological connections between Mary and um, this figure of the woman, it's the way in which They present Mary as if she has a corner on all of this typology, as if she were the one that everything refers to. And so when we think about great figures of the Old Testament, like um, Sarah, for instance, as the great mother of the people, there is a sense in which we can have great statements made about her and recognize in her the typology of this motherhood of the nation playing out, or in the story of Rebecca, or um, think about the story of Rachel, the way that Rachel weeps for the children of the entire nation. And yet the Catholic danger is the way in which it excludes so much of the typology and just focuses it upon one figure. And so what we're arguing for is not a rejection of some of these typological connections with Mary, but the way in which others are excluded And um, there is this lack of a sense of a, a more archetypal figure here. I mean, we've noted in that sort of triptych, there's an allusion back to the original promise of the gospel that there is the serpent, the woman and her seed. So this is Eve, apart from anything else. It does
1: fit the gospel story, especially as Matthew tells it, because you have a woman in labor giving birth to a son who's going to end up being the king. And right at her side, uh, waiting for the child to be born, is a predator, a dragon, who's going to devour the child. And, uh, you know, the Matthew 1 and 2, that's exactly the scenario uh, with uh, Herod in the position of the dragon. But, yeah, it's also the scenario in Eden. It's a scenario in, you know, the dragon is right there. As soon as God forms his child, his son, and then gives him a a bride, the dragon is there to attack the bride. And we have it in Egypt with uh, Israel under threat from uh, the dragon Pharaoh. So I I think you you have, as Alistair, as you said, you have the whole triptych that's repeated. And Jeff, to answer your question, I think if you you don't have either or uh, dichotomies, then um, there's no job security for scholars because you you have to be able to debate these things, (laughs) take strong positions on one side or the other of the debate,
2: or what else, what do you exist for? The whole PhD business would just collapse, be gone. (laughs) I think
1: one of the reasons why I wanted to work in Revelation 12 into this series is because precisely for what Jeff and Alistair just said, is that you have all of these birth stories throughout the Bible, and then you have this culminating thing That is, I think Mary is certainly in the picture, but it's it's the climactic vision of a birth story, and it throws light, I think, on the entire history of Israel, the entire purpose of Israel, which is to Israel exists as mother. Israel is called to be the mother of the Messiah, and in a sense, the entire history of Israel is one long labor. Israel is laboring until Christ is formed among them, until Christ is born out of. Mother Israel, you know the, the church in a sense is existing in the same way. You know, Christ, Jesus Christ, has been born, but the the church is still in labor until Christ is formed among us. Until Christ is form, formed, among the nations. But uh, this throws light on the entire history of Israel, uh, summarizing that history as um, as a story of birth.
3: One of the things that I've argued when reading something like the story of the Exodus is that the entire thing is framed as a story of birth very much according to this analogy there's the women and the children that they're giving the baby boys they're giving birth to and then there's the dragon of pharaoh and then the story leads up to the deliverance of the lord's firstborn son israel herself from the womb of egypt through this narrow passage there's the blood on the doorposts there's the um, the law concerning the child that opens the womb in chapter 13, and all of this frames what's taking place as a birth event. And as such, when we think about just how um, fundamental the Exodus motif is for scripture, it suggests that there may be something even more fundamental, which is this archetypal relationship between the woman, the serpent and the seed from Genesis chapter three, verse 15. And so that's playing out in the story of the Exodus. It's playing out in the story of Christ's birth with the threat of um, Herod. And it's playing out here in the heavens themselves. And so we can see it on smaller scales, but we can also see that behind all of that, there is
4: this archetypal conflict going on. So I had a question about what you were just mentioning, Alistair, the heavenly backdrop of this. I can totally see the parallels and the resonances with Israel's history in so many ways, and and particularly the agony of giving birth when you think of figures like Rachel and and Eve, um, in fact. But I wonder what you guys make of the fact that it is portrayed in this heavenly um, light and the woman is clothed with the sun um, uh, and and the moon. What's that sort of uh, adding to the story at this point? Perhaps one thing is the astral
3: symbolism that we see at various points within the book of revelation um you can think about the celestial woman is virgo you've got the um sun passing through virgo at that time the moon at her feet the particular positioning of the moon relative to the the sign that's austin farrow's argument i think um and then the the 12 stars um we can think about the way that that relates to the The stars in Joseph's vision, for instance, and a reference to the signs of the zodiac, that this is a vision of um, ruling authorities in the heavens that are symbolized by these signs and are often referred to just within the symbolic structure of heavenly visions and visions of rule more generally. We see it within the bowing of the stars to Joseph, or we can see it in the way that the... um, the elders and others are, or the tribes of Israel are situated around the center of the sun of the tabernacle or the throne. Um, so I wonder whether that's part of what's going on.
1: Yeah, I guess I'd I'd say more generally that uh, Israel is a, a called to be a, a a people positioned between the God of heaven and the peoples of the earth. So uh, their theological and symbolic station. In the world is in the heavenly places. So, uh, just as Paul says, we don't struggle against flesh and blood, but, but against spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Israel is, in a sense, in that position. They're they're the caretakers of the heavenly, uh, of the of the temple, which is the the house of the God of Heaven on Earth. As Alistair was saying, you have the the symbolism of sun, moon, and stars associated with the uh, with the temple of. Uh, Oh, sorry. With the family of uh, of Jacob, um, so you, you have you have various kinds of uh, uh, heavenly s- symbols that are associated with Israel. That I think that that that's the large background. I would say uh, that Israel's struggle to uh, give birth to the Messiah is a struggle not just against the various earthly threats, but it's also ultimately a struggle against the the dragon, the the serpent of old, who's trying to devour them and prevent this new Eve, Israel, from giving birth to
4: the Messiah. Right. And I guess in the Old Testament, we have various struggles portrayed in heavenly terms. One clear example might be um, Deborah Song in Judges 5, where the battle between Sisera and Israel's authorities is portrayed precisely as a, a battle between stars. Um, and so it has that heavenly um, or apocalyptic sense to it. could also think about the way in which the firmament
3: as a divide between heaven and earth, as something that renders what's taking place in the heavens opaque and um, prevents us from seeing and understanding what's occurring. Um, That's a very powerful theme in books such as Job, where Job struggles to understand the sufferings that he's experiencing, not realizing what's taking place in the heavens and the conflict that's playing out there. And the Lord's response to him, particularly in giving the example of his control over leviathan who is i think the archetypal dragon um leviathan and and behemoth represent death and also the dragon of evil um that the lord is powerful over those he controls them he's not um at their mercy they're not true rivals to his his reign and here we have a sort of unveiling of what's taking place above the firmament that helps us to relate to it very differently. I often think about how would we develop, for instance, a doctrine of Satan from um, the book of Genesis. We've got the story of um, the serpent in chapter three, but after that, and chapter four, the, the beast crouching at the door, what do we have? Not actually that much, but what we do have are these shadowy, these patterns of, Opposition to the seed, opposition to the woman, attempt to capture the woman within which we see the shadow of the serpent and the dragon lying over the face of the text. And so, when you have some sense of what's taking place above the firmament, that this is the serpent, the dragon that was of old, you can begin to read those stories differently. You begin to read, for instance, the character of and Pharaoh recognizing that there is a bigger dragon behind him, he's just a mini serpent representing this greater dragon. And again, that's something that we see within this chapter and the chapter that follows. There is this great dragon and he's mirrored within this sea beast. And then the sea beast has his own mini me, which is the land beast. And those relationships, once we've seen what's taking place above, above the firmament take a very different aspect for us we recognize that even when we're struggling with the sea beast or the land beast we are fighting against heavenly forces that that
2: raises a question about <clears throat> that's a that's a great point alistair the identification of the stars of heaven in verse four that are cast down to the earth uh, by the dragon's tail are those I mean, th- Lots of times this is taken to refer to um, the the fall of Satan and the fall of uh, angelic, angelic. you know, the third of the angels come down, all that. But um, it's certainly possible these are angels, these stars, but it's also possible since Israel is often identified with the stars of heaven, that this has to do with Israelite saints uh, being... Swept away by the devil's the devil's seduction. So, and so what you're what you're reading about here is the demonic infestation uh, of Israel and her synagogues at the time of Jesus, and also the the um, uh, the way in which people are used by Satan uh, to to war against the saints, the war against the. Uh, the child and against the the children of the child or the uh um uh, yeah what how is that described later um i can't remember but anyway uh it seems to me like a good interpretation of this would be and it, maybe it's not an either or at this point too could be both demonic powers cast down onto the land that that and the messengers the angels being um all the the all the enemies all the Classic enemies we read about in the New Testament, uh, both against Jesus and against uh, his church, against the apostles.
1: Yeah, that's the way I, I've taken that uh, image. It's a the the dragon casting down angels to uh, demo, demon, demonic angelic figures to do his bidding, or yeah, an apostasy or fall of heavenly hosts of Israel. Uh, I mean, part of the reason, the main reason for not saying it's a kind of pre. A, a pre-fall fall of Satan, you know the the Milton kind of fall of Satan and his hosts is just the context we're talking about. The woman in labor, she's about to give birth to a child, and then the the child is born in verse five. The whole context suggests a setting that has to do with the surroundings of Jesus' birth and the history of Israel. And so, uh, the 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 most the most uh, natural in that setting, it seems, the most natural way to read it would be. Uh, Satan has cast down some from heavenly places in in Israel seems like we had some of that uh, imagery used in the latter chapters of uh, Daniel when we were going through uh, uh, the prophecy of Daniel the fall of uh, prominent figures in Israel or the throwing down of demons the seeding of demons into the land I think b- both of those work and I think that in the context that seems to me the most reasonable reasonable take on the on that.
2: Yes, I think it's both in Daniel 8 and Daniel 11, where falling stars were apostate Israelites.
3: Yeah. All right. You might also think back to chapter 8, where there are a number of things that are thrown down as a result of the the four trumpets that open the trumpet sequence. And a third of several items are struck at that point. This would seem to correspond with that to some degree. And then also when we think about the fifth trumpet, there is the star that had fallen from heaven that opens the bottomless pit.
1: Once the woman uh, does give birth, we have this immediate uh, ascension of the child. Um, The child eludes the dragon. The dragon isn't able to devour him. Uh, And he's born and immediately is Raised up to rule the nations, caught up to God into His throne. In verse five, so um, I mean, we're, we're obviously we've got a compressed storyline. I think that I mean, there are commentators who who think it's this is obscured that it's not actually talking about Jesus' birth and His exaltation. Uh, certainly, there are many other things that are at work here, but that's centrally at work. That's the it's Mother Israel giving birth to the Son. Israel's entire existence is uh, oriented to this point when the son is born who is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron and who will sit on the Lord's throne and on his throne. So, uh, and one, one of the things that we can, I mean, we thinking about this is in terms of the nativity of Jesus, that is the announcement of the angel Gabriel, it's the announcement of the angels to the shepherds. Christ is born, the city of David, this is David's son, the birth of jesus is the birth of a king i think what revelation 12 shows us is that this, the birth of this king is not only a king for israel not only a king for the nations but this is a king who's going to be exalted to heaven and is going to stir things in heaven and cause the ultimately cause the uh, the dragon and his angels to be cast down from heaven down to the land or down to earth so uh, the uh, the birth of jesus is not only overturning things on earth, as we talked about last time when we talked about the Magnificat. Uh, But uh, Jesus' birth is oriented to his exaltation, uh, where he's going to overturn the structures of heaven and overthrow the dragon who has had a position of authority there.
3: One of the questions that I have on, on that is that when we read through John, he doesn't actually give us a birth account of Christ. What he does have is an anticipation of a birth in chapter 16, in verse twenty-one, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And it seems to me that John, along with a lot of um, Pauline theology, focuses birth imagery not upon Christ's first coming into the the world in human flesh, but upon his rebirth from the grave. That the true birth that comes into the central focus is the fact that the womb of the tomb has been opened. What was barren as described in the book of the end of book, the book of Proverbs or the parallel that we see, for instance, in Psalm 139, um, knit together in the lowest parts of the earth or in Job, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will return there. Or within the curses where the judgment upon the womb and the judgment upon Man returning to the earth are paralleled with each other, and it seems to me that we could maybe read this not as a reference to Christ's birth in um, Bethlehem, but a reference to his birth from the grave, and then the immediacy of the ascension makes a lot more sense. Then,
2: well, that also then ties in with Psalm two, because it uh, this day I begot. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations to to rule. Uh, This day I've begotten you, you are my son, Um, so that the rebirth is associated with the enthronement of Jesus, um, which is the consummation of his life. That's often not, I don't think that really occurs to people. People read Psalm 2, and they think, I don't understand why this is the birth of the Davidic king, his ascension to the throne. But yet at the same time, this is when he receives his inheritance, when he gets
4: what he's promised. And that's that's true of Jesus as well. So one thing I wonder about in terms of that interpretation is, um, I mean, maybe, maybe you don't read it like this, but it seems to me that the child is caught up to God and to his throne um, in order to um, avoid danger, you know, and, and in order to um, es- escape the dragon, at which point the woman, fleas and so um what, what do you guys make of that i mean I, I wonder about extending the image of the male uh child to include the church insofar as we have the church referred to in the the letters at the end of chapter two is one who will rule the nations with a a rod of iron but um yeah maybe maybe you've got a different take on that
1: so the the, the picture the whole scene would be Israel given birth, giving birth to the church, and the church being uh, caught up and being protected from a dragon's attacks. Um, is that the kind of is that the kind of scenario you're, you're seeing here? Right. Yeah. 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 I, I, that that could be. I think that certainly could be uh, an overlay uh, of the whole scene. And yeah, the uh, you're right. In Revelation, the church shares with Jesus, the authority over the nations, ruling with him, sitting on his throne along with him. Um, the, one of the things that I, I uh, uh, su- suggested in my commentary is the, yeah, I, th- I think the, the immediate picture is Jesus being rescued, which is, again, yeah, you can say, I, I think uh, to allude to Jeff's uh, mantra today, it doesn't have to be an either or, does it? Birth story, birth from the grave story um, birth of the Church story. These are all kind of overlapping kinds of ideas that uh, all may be packed in here in different ways. And one of the things that uh, seems to be going on here is that the 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 son, the child, is caught up. He's still a child. Uh, there's a war in heaven, and Michael is the one who's designated as the one who casts out the dragon, uh, casts out the dragon and his hosts. And for the next several chapters, we don't have any appearance of this son. The the, the saints are going through this horrific uh, period of persecution. The the, the city is drinking their blood. The beasts are against them and overcoming them, trampling them down. And all through that, uh, this child who's been on the throne is apparently doing nothing. He's absent, which I think is exactly what Jesus said would happen. Uh, I'm going away from you, and when I go away, all these things are going to happen to you. And then the next time we see Jesus is when he appears in chapter 19 as the the next time he enters the story in person is when he enters as the triumphant king. In chapter 19, he's the rider on the white horse and so on. But um, uh, his uh, growth, as it were, from child to triumphant king is carried out through the suffering and glory of the church. It's when the saints suffer that Jesus, as it were, grows up from being a child king to being the full conquering king. So, I think uh, that that would support your idea, James, that there's a that the church is part of what the what's being uh, spoken of here.
3: I think one of the surprises on that front is that in verse um, 17, at the end of the chapter, we have a reference to the rest of her offspring. And it seems strange, who are the rest of her offspring? We have this one child that is given birth to, and then suddenly we have a group of children. And it draws my mind back to the very end of the book of Isaiah, where you have this statement about Jerusalem giving birth to a male child, and then suddenly there's a whole nation given birth to in one day. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says your God? And within the book of Isaiah, there's this common theme of Zion's troubled relationship with her children, um, her barrenness, the children being, being bereaved of her children, her children being taken away from her and she's left bereft. And here, I think we have maybe behind this woman, the figure of Zion who's struggling to give birth to this one great son, who as he opens the womb, all of these children will come forth in a sudden burst of a nation being born in one day. And then the rest of the offspring seem to be left on earth because they're vulnerable to the attacks of the serpent. But the the great son who's going to rule with the rod of iron, he is the one that's caught up. And then later on, he will bring up the rest of the children with him.